Hi yet. I'm Kenzo and I'm not going to start the top of the show today talking about uh, some in-depth lifestyle related political thing. Instead I want to start by reading a story. It's a short story that uh, my friend Dan and I wrote a couple of years ago. Dan died recently and I've been thinking about him a lot and yesterday during work I was having a conversation about fairy tales and about how originally they were very depressing and they were more reflective of reality than the whole Disney fairy tale thing is today. And so it made me think of the story that Dan and I wrote as these two things came together and I just wanted to share that and just get it out there. So yeah, here goes. Day one, dig yourself out of your own grave. 30 days, 30 challenges. Day two, Explain why you turned up to work covered in dirt. Day three. Work out how to wash six feet of dirt off your fingernails, plus find tweezers to remove splinters and bones. Day four. Remove your own bones while staying alive, or at least upright. Day six. Put your bones back on. Day seven. Create your own exoskeleton. Day eight. Become the coolest exoskeleton on the dance floor ever. Day nine, learn at least one respectable dance move. Day 10, realize all your friends only liked you because you were easy to get drunk. Day 11, drink away that realization and find some new friends who only like you because you're drunk already. Day 12, wake up alone and wonder why you ever wanted any friends anyway. Day 13, create a new friend out of random animal bones. Call her Susie. Day 14, find a stranger's window to hang Susie from. Day 15. Realise all of your plans have been ruined by Susie and that hanging her is not enough. She needs to be taught a lesson. Sell Susie to a Nigerian witch doctor and watch her get sold for sex and marriage on the internet. Day 16. Teaching Susie a lesson and watching her destruction brings self-realisation that you'll never be satisfied through the pain of others. Challenge. To find something that satisfies you. Day 17. Find something that satisfies you which isn't Susie. Have sexual relations with six different types of matter, one of which must be moss. Day 18. Check your genitals for woodlice. Day 19. Train your woodlice to be DJs, but only give them songs by Swedish artists from the 90s. Day 20. Create a palatable remix of 90s Swedish pop and Irish river dance. Day 21. Learn to speak Icelandic so you can say, it's quiet, loudly. Tell Susie to shut the fuck up. Susie gets on your nerves, so you molest her with an axe until you realise she's already dead, to bring in the snake from earlier. Day 22. You bring in the snake from earlier and show it to your class. Susie watches from the cupboard, her pelvis propped up by a pair of scissors, her smile painted on with seagull blood, a style you label abstract marine. Day 23. The students misunderstand your style and begin to paint maniacal murals of underwater nightmares. Day 24. You decide you like your students' murals. You create an abstraquarium and invite the parents along, offering them tea and biscuits and a unique underwater experience. Unfortunately, Susie also turns up. She watches on as the parents praise the trout frescoes and the marlin-studded murals, growing angrier all the while. One parent slips on a wine glass and Susie pounces, slicing her throat with the dorsal fin of a wobegong shark. You're fed up with Susie and you're in other people's marine nightmares. Too many drowning babies and propeller decapitations. You decide to give Susie a unique underwater experience. Her bones fill with bloody water and nightmare residue. Her squeals sound like seagulls. Day 25. No matter how hard you try, you can't get the echo of seagull squeals out of your mind. You decide to travel to the sea. Your decision to baptise Susie in the school kitchen wasn't enough. Susie waits patiently behind you as you draw closer to the water ahead. You try again to show the animated bones just how sick you're feeling. It just so happens that today there are no seagulls. Day 26. Luckily there are no seagulls. You stand on the shore, Susie's frail body gripped in your frail hands. You think back on your life. What has it all meant? 
Why am I here? What happens now? You've spent your whole life chasing ghosts, frail and weak between your fingers, but ghosts nonetheless, ethereal, dancing, shadows against the backdrop of a gothic moon. How much time have you spent looking for companionship, waiting for someone, anyone to fill the void? And then you found Susie. Susie had filled that void. She'd been your Laconian reflection, offering respite from your ego, yet you'd killed her, drowned her, burned her, ripped apart her bones. What if you were Susie? What if Susie were just a creation of you, invented to keep the nightmares at bay? What happens then? You hold Susie tighter, waves lapping at your feet. Do you throw her into the sea? Rips curling like sharks, scattering sand about in circles. Or do you bring her to shore, embrace her, bring her into your life? Your knees are wet, you're cold. What do you do with Susie? Day 27. You stay there, now kneeling on the shore, holding frailty in your hands and thinking what it would mean to physically destroy something so abstract, so variable, yet so perceivably constant as Susie. How alone would you truly be? With Susie gone, would you continue to wander alone, or would you find something new to fill the void that Susie's destruction would create? You think on your life, opportunities missed, wrong choices made, and you consider that although potentially nothing good can come from the dissolution of the exoskeleton you created for yourself, bringing her into your life would solidify your current state and hold you to the ropes you tied. You plunge Susie into the underwater dreams painted by the hands of children and watch the bones dissolve as nightmares and possibilities rise from the spray. Day 28. Nightmares and possibilities rise from the spray. There is no Susie. Susie who, you ask? No one answers. You have three days to start your life again. Day 29. You walk. Day 30. You walk, straddling the white cliffs of Dover, standing like pigeon shit on the lap of England. You walk, across the Mediterranean and east, picking olives and democracy and the fruits from the island of Lesbos. You walk, romantic pillars thrusting starward, Egyptian pyramids moaning publicly. You walk, across distant lands and strange ideas, across deserts and loneliness. Susie is dead, but you find an oasis in the desert. Water shimmers, ladies dance, you smell the prospect of a new romance. But it's a mirage. You keep walking, walking, walking. You arrive in Hanoi, hungry for bones. You've lost everything, even the mirror tells you so. You walk into a Hanoi bar, tired and naked and confused. Hi, I'm 29 and I live in Tasmania. I was just wondering what this new drug spice is and why does it have such an extreme effect on people's mind and body? Spice is essentially a mixture of chemicals created to make a synthetic cannabis. It is meant to recreate the effects of THC on cannabinoids, which you find in weed. And spice is basically synthetic recreation of that and can therefore be made a hundred times stronger. So this is essentially what spice is. Basically, you can get any kind of herbs or smokable substance and you can spray on these synthetic THC cannabinoid things. <laughs> and then you can sell it as a drug because the makeup of the synthetic drugs varies the effects can vary with that and obviously different users quote different experiences spice has got kind of a reputation in the uk i haven't come into contact with it a lot myself but it's got tabloid reputation of being this like new evil big zombie drug it renders you brain dead, it gives you a lack of control, you've got no control over your body, no control over your mind, and you just, you, you kind of exist, but you can't really communicate. Uh, this is what one user describes the experience like. It's like being on another planet, or being from another planet. Imagine that you're stoned, and you kind of have the usual feelings from smoking, maybe some really strong skunk, and it can either be really creative and silly and inspiring or it can be really full of paranoia and exhausting and terrifying it's the same it's the same thing really but just multiplied by a hundred if you smoke some weed and you are not having a good time then you get this kind of this incredible fear and paranoia about movement and anything you become nervous and you can't do anything so imagine that times 100 is when it's bad, and I guess when it's good, it's, it's the same thing.
essentially it boils down to it's a synthetic cannabis which is sprayed onto plants which you can smoke and it is a variety of chemicals which varies with each manufacturer so you're never quite sure what's going to happen or how strong it's going to be because it's all synthetic and you don't know the exact mix of chemicals you don't know how strong it is it's just do a tiny 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 little bit at a time and look after yourself that's my advice hi i'm a male from bristol also involved in empty cages collective a group fighting for prison abolition i read that 35 percent of the prison population in this country are addicts and many more are in for things related to drugs in direct or indirect ways what do you think are the effects that incarceration of addicts has on the addicts themselves and also society's view of the addicts? For drugs and prisons, big subject. First, I guess my opinion on prisons. I think the prison system takes a far too black and white view on society. They they seem to revolve around a philosophy that a person is a bad person, needs to be put away, corrected, and then let back into society where they can be a good person. And this is not how society works, and this is not how people work. People commit crimes for a massive variety of different reasons, whether it's accidental, whether it's on purpose, whether it's contextual, whether it's because of their social, economical, mental, physical situation. And the prison system does not take any of this into account. Also... Actually, I'm, I'm going to stop myself before I go on a massive rant about judge prejudices and uh, social inequality and keep this specific to prisons. But at any rate, the idea that we can take a person out of their normal life, put them into a prison and treat them like they are a lesser person than others and then ask them to go back into society as a better person is nonsense. Absolutely ridiculous. That's my opinion. In terms of the effects of incarceration on addicts themselves, well, as I spoke about in a previous podcast, addicts tend to be people who've suffered from trauma or are in some way disconnected from society and the world we live in because of their personal experience, which has led them to experience a life that is without community and support and love. So for people who have already suffered or or are already suffering, further subjecting them to social isolation and further minimising the capacity for them to function in the outside world is no reason for them to change. In fact, typically each return to prison signifies a deeper level of addiction. It brings associated decline in health, employment, social functioning, and these are things that an addict already struggles with. So if you think about how when you apply for a job and they ask you if you have a prison sentence and you are honest when they ask you then you're already exposing yourself to prejudice and discrimination in your employment which is then further marginalizing you from society which is then increasing the appeal of drugs and to find seek comfort in other ways the prison system is just placing more barriers towards support and inclusion than it is helping people So as an example, and as this podcast seems to have a theme of stories, I'm going to read you a story of one woman's experience in the prison system. This story is taken from Vanessa Elaine's study, Locked Up Means Locked Out, Women, Addiction and Incarceration, and is based in America. However, I think the situation can find very clear parallels here. So thanks to the researcher for providing the story. Here goes. Vivian is a 31-year-old African-American woman who used marijuana and alcohol in slowly increasing amounts over the past several years as she became more heavily involved with a man who was an illicit drug trafficker. She lived in public housing and graduated from high school with dreams of pursuing a career in art design before becoming pregnant in her senior year of high school. Vivian was arrested during a raid of the bodega in which she worked and was found with an unprescribed pill, Vicodin, in her pocket. This was Vivian's second arrest for drugs. The first was for being in a car with a man who had drugs. They were stopped by the police one night and both were arrested. She was given probation, which she did not complete to the probation officer's satisfaction, in that she continued to associate with the drug-involved man. Thus, she had a violation of probation on her record at the time of her second arrest. Vivian was arrested and sent to the county jail. Her children, a boy and a girl, were put into foster care. Vivian spent three months in jail waiting to hear whether she'd be sentenced or what would happen. 
Vivian's public defender arrived with a plea offer for the prosecutor, which is three years in state prison, out in nine months with good behaviour. Vivian felt that getting substance abuse treatment would be a better option for her though, because without it, she believed she might not qualify to get her children back. She refused the offer and asked again for treatment. During the time that she was in prison, evicted from her apartment because she wasn't there to pay the rent and all her possessions, including her children's clothing and furniture, were lost. After several months, the judge, in her case, approved treatment in lieu of incarceration. However, he approved long-term intensive treatment of 12 to 18 months at an inpatient programme for women. She wanted to just opt for the shortest route to freedom so that she could get her children back. So she opted for state prison, nine months, and then be done with it. Uh, she decided she'd rather attend outpatient day treatment after prison, have her children with her at home while doing so. Thus, she pleaded guilty to a felony conviction and was sentenced to three years and returned to jail to await the bus to state prison. When she was eventually released, Vivian was given a bus ticket to a major city near her neighbourhood and $5. She returned to her neighbourhood, placed her name on the shelter waiting list for that evening. Without assistance, Vivian knew that she had no visible means of support and as such could not demonstrate to Child Protective Services that she could become self-sufficient and provide adequately for her children. Gradually, Vivian began to realise that her prison sentence had continued on the outside. Being locked up had, in effect, locked Vivian out of all legitimate routes away from a drug-involved lifestyle. She felt like a caged bird. Consequently, she began a slow drift back towards her former boyfriend, not because she saw a real future with him, but rather out of fiscal necessity and emotional neediness. He rescued her, but with a high price tag, involvement in exactly the lifestyle that Vivian wanted and needed so much to avoid. So that story highlights the cycle that being put into the prison system can initiate. And considering that the prison system is making some of the most vulnerable people in society even more vulnerable, then it's just a self-perpetuating cycle. The opposite view to the one I'm taking is that the people who take drugs are criminals and they should be locked up and they should be kept away from other people as they are a risk to safety. I guess the arguments that are pro-prison system are that people can be rehabilitated in prison and that they can be also put away, punished and kept kind of out of sight and out of mind. When it comes to society's view on addicts, out of sight, out of mind is a really easy option and if you're not affected by it then why should you care basically I think that's the big question really obviously society's view on addicts and society's view on crime is that you know tough on crime will make it safer and a better place to be and a better country to live in and this will benefit us all for people who are in positions of privilege for example wealthier people or in people in positions of power they don't have the same vulnerabilities so if somebody with wealth and privilege and power is caught stealing or taking drugs it's dealt with very differently and this is where the kind of empathy gap occurs and that is what our social system relies on. This is a very simplistic black and white view of the way that the world works and which I stated at the beginning of this question, is not what I believe. Hi, my name is Uli and I'm from Vermont in the USA. And my question is, I was wondering if you think that there are any positive lessons or experiences or tools or skills that we can get out of having an experience with addiction. Thank you. Addiction here is defined as any activity that's repeated despite negative impact. And we only really categorise an activity as an addiction when we're asked to stop and we can't. So we suffer either mentally or physically or financially. For example, going into debt from multiple gym memberships. <laughs> Thus, the, the definition of the concept of addiction overall is negative. But there are personal and individual experiences within that which can be considered as positive and applied as skills to later life. In the short term, addiction is a coping strategy, self-medication or protection from yourself and the world around you. It can be considered as a respite from the suffering you feel. And obviously addiction to anything isn't the best method of medication or protection. But if there is little potential for change in circumstances, 
then any relief is valuable and I believe we should allow an addict their chosen medication as it is society that disallows them legitimate pathways to change. For example, we saw in the last question, once you've been through the prison system, a lot of pathways to social inclusion are taken away from you. And if a person has no way to get out, then I think that they should be allowed their method of self-medication. I don't think it's really fair to take that away as well. Every addiction story is different, however, and so specific skills and lessons that you can learn will vary. However, there are some themes that appear to be common between people who've suffered addictive experiences. After recovery, it's possible to look back and take into consideration the gifts and the strengths that succeeding in the face of adversity and hardship has allowed us. The journey of recovery requires a person to be rigidly creative in building new life structures. You need to understand yourself, your triggers and your mental patterns and work towards improving communication with yourself and with others around you. You need to work on your stress and your anger management and you need to dedicate yourself to a daily routine as well as incorporating time for compassionate yet critical perspective on your actions. These are all really important general life skills and the learning of them during recovery is amplified and intensified and so to succeed and to break through the addictive patterns you need to be really good at understanding and managing these things and through personally through my addiction I've initiated a lot of self-exploration and I'm working towards understanding myself in the context of the world around me which has been fascinating sometimes not all positive and sometimes you get caught up in why you're like something and you start ascribing narratives and it can all kind of have a bit of a downward spiral but Overall, I think it's increased my empathy for others and it's opened my eyes to both the flaws and the achievements of our culture. I think I'm more tolerant and I'm less judgmental and honestly my addiction has galvanised my passion for social change. I am a lot more enthusiastic and passionate about making a difference and not allowing other people to go through the same things that I've been through. I now feel a strong urge to help others and I understand that what can fill my void is to not stand back and allow people to suffer but to at least in some small way seek self-fulfillment through helping others and I think this is a really positive thing and it's also really common with people who've overcome or are still undergoing addiction. Many support workers or social carers are people who've battered their own personal demons and they've won. So I think that actually recognising and investigating your personal addictive behaviour, whatever that may be, can be hugely beneficial to empathy and dedication towards changing things for the better. Once you've encountered the, the prejudice and the discrimination of current ideas towards addicts, it really enthuses you and empowers you towards change and it's given me this strength and this fire as well as improved communication skills and a more complex understanding of the world I think it's been incredibly beneficial obviously this is something that's beneficial after recovery so it's beneficial in the long term and there's you know there's the common understanding that after going through hardship people are stronger And I believe this is true in the case of the addict as well. But yeah, so the positive, the skills and the tools, I think, come from long-term recovery. However, yeah, with people who have no way out and have no reason to get out because there is nothing that society that can offer them, I think that people should be allowed to continue with their self-medication because, honestly, what else is there in the current climate? Now we're going to introduce a short interview which I hosted with a friend of mine who suffers from an eating disorder and I just I was interested in the ideas of control and how addiction factors into ideas of control over your behavior and your body Uh, the idea of these parallels came from when I was offered methadone as a script and I didn't want to take it because I didn't want to give over the control of my addiction. I think it's something which is really important in my behaviour. And the idea of having to be high every day and not having the choice whether to or not. Because at the moment, even if I am getting high every day, it's at my own decision and I decide when I can stop. 
and when I can't, which is in itself is an illusion, but I still feel like I need the illusion of control in my addictive behaviour. And I wanted to look at the parallels between this and the idea of an eating disorder and control over your eating. So here's the interview. So I've been battling with uh, an eating disorder probably, probably heavily for about six years now. And um, mainly bulimia, though there are intermittent periods of me not eating very much, but I'm not very good at that. <laughs> um, and I love food, and it is something that I do struggle with, my desire to eat, and then I'll overeat, and then I'll, I'll purge, and then sometimes I'll get hooked on, on doing that. And there have been periods, probably about three, three periods in my life where it's been an, uh, an absolute addiction where I've gone to work and it's all I can think about. And I'd go home and I would just do that. And, and it interfered with my social life. I'd, I wouldn't want to go out. All I want to do is sit at home and binge and purge and binge and purge. And and, um, and you do release uh, dopamine and serotonin when you, when you do that. So it's a, it's a similar thing. And definitely there was, I think that sometimes with the idea of control in that, it would be more that... I would tell myself that it was a means at which to control my, my diet and my weight gain that justified what I was doing. Whereas actually, in reality, when I look back on my weight or my health, not so much my health, because it's not about health, but my weight, I don't think that I was any more or less big or small. Because actually, there are a lot of suggestions that binging and purging doesn't really prevent you from gaining or losing weight. Because a lot of what the... What your, the fat that your body soaks in, soaks in really quickly. So you might be purging some of the fibre, but you've already soaked up the fat. So I wonder if I would use the idea of control as an excuse to keep doing something that I didn't really realise was harmful, because there's still a power in the word control. Mm. But I, when I look at it, I don't think that I was actually in control at all. When I think back on those times when I was really ill with the addiction of it, I wasn't in control of what I was doing. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I think I'd look back as well and say the same thing. You have an idea that you're in control because you're handling and you're limiting it to a certain space or a certain time or your or your, a reason. Or a reason. Oh, it's good because actually I ate too much and I'm still keeping in the right amount of food. That I should, I'm still eating yeah. the right amount of calories today. I'm just like throwing up <laughs> 6,000 calories that I wasn't meant to eat. <laughs> the logic, yeah, the yeah. logic is... The logic is totally self-serving. Yeah, and the logic isn't control. And yeah. I think that, and I th honestly, when I think about some of the things I would say to myself to, to, to soothe myself in the periods of real illness, yeah, it just, it really, but to go back to that word, it, it, it wasn't, wasn't control. Did you find, when you told people about it, how, what were their reactions? Yeah, actually, I've not told very many people. You're one of the people that, not you're one of the persons that uh, knows about it. I told my brother. I told him because I was contemplating telling my parents. This was when I was really ill. And he said to me, oh, I, I wouldn't tell mum and dad because they're probably going to think that um, you're just trying to get attention. And, uh, and I think that that set me backwards. But actually, that was an interesting turning point for me because I think that I had this idea in my mind for a long time that I was going to come out to the world and then when I did that, then my rehabilitation was going to come forward. Mm -hmm. And then after I had that experience and that conversation with my brother and, and actually the, my, my coming out party was declined, then I built steps towards recovery personally. But I would be interesting to talk to you about what you define as your recovery in me because I still feel a negativity towards my body and my image and the way I eat frequently but I don't binge and purge like I used to but I will do it sometimes yeah. by sometimes I mean maybe it'll be once a month maybe it'll be four times a month maybe it'll be four times a week mm -hmm. but it's not that I'm in the throw of it permanently and then when I think about heroin I think about the difference between being physically addicted to it where you have to go through the withdrawal the big coming out which is where I was I was physically addicted to to the, to the bulimia, definitely. To, to now, where I have the control mm -hmm. of being able to decide 
not decide this is not definitely not a decision that's not true where I have the the illusion of control where I will sometimes eat like a normal person and then sometimes not mm-hmm. but it's not I'm not gonna stop doing it and withdraw from it that's yeah I think the withdrawal is is a big thing in that because there's a long-term kind of consequence I guess like you what I was doing where I was taking it every weekend and then I was just I'd flip back onto subbies and then I'd stop the subbies and I'd flip back onto heroin and that that was I think it was a similar thing I felt like I was doing okay and I felt like you know I'm not high all the time so I'm definitely doing better than I was I'm in control of again in control of this but I was very aware that my subutex was a limited supply. What do you mean? Is in like you only had because, so much of a prescription? Or? Yeah, well, because I, I came off my prescription, um, I only have what I've stored up from not taking it when I was on my prescription. Well, when you look at the way that heroin was in, was in the media and the way that we're, we're meant to believe it was used during like the train spying days to now, it's almost like an unspoken about drug. Mm. No one would really assume that like someone young and with a reasonable job in their uh, 20s would be taking heroin. It's for, it's become isolated to a very specific portion of society. Mm. Which I think is, I think that if you looked below the surface, especially in like um, a city like Bristol where there's a lot of drug use, you would be surprised to see who takes heroin. I would, ne- I would never have thought 10, 10 years ago that one of my closest friends would, would be somebody who... Um, would ha- would be addicted to heroin, but then that and that and I remember when you first told me that you were taking it, and I thought the world was ending, and I cried, and I was like, oh my god, she's gonna die. This was a while ago now, and actually, it's weird. It's not that I'm, it's not that I care any less about you, or it's actually more that I've educated myself a little bit more about what the drug is and what it does, and and uh, and what it means. To, 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 to you or whoever it is that's using it. Whereas before I was just living in that train spotting film where I thought you were going to start seeing dead babies and things. Really, I just had no fucking idea. I think that, I mean, that's that's the instant go-to reaction because, because I mean, why would you look into it anymore? If it's, if it's something that's not a part of your life and it's not something that affects you, then there's no reason to. And obviously the first thing you think of is what you've seen in the media. I wondered to you what your preconception of somebody with an eating disorder was and how you've seen that play out with me. I think similar in the way that it has, it's confronted some of my presumptions. My, my preconception of somebody with an eating disorder is that person with the bones sticking out of their skin and so like, and, and very shy and broken and insecure and yeah very shy with it and I think I mean you've remained your ever positive ever amazing definitely not shy no definitely not shy it's not uh, something I suffer from (laughs) but also I don't know how you feel about me saying this yeah that I I kind of looked down on somebody with an eating disorder thinking like oh they obviously give a shit too much about what other Mm. people think of them and Do you think that it's that you thought that it was something that shallow people did and you know me and you know that you wouldn't consider me shallow? Yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was somebody who, like, bought too much into the idea of, like, perfume adverts. Right. And knowing you... (laughs) (laughs) But, like... But I wonder if then there's a thing where it's not about if I look like the L'Oreal girl, if it's that control thing. But, uh, but now I know that it's not because I think that I've looked inwardly at some of the reasons why I've come to this point in my life and I can pinpoint triggers and moments in my life that led me to having problems with food. Yeah. But it's weird, isn't it? Because when you look at like the differences between, say, my... Let's, say, let's call it my addiction and your addiction. Yeah. Okay. And then if you look at my addiction, in many ways the world is to blame for my addiction. This poor girl who uh, had to look at loads of um, adverts of skinny women and grew up in the first age of mass online pornography and uh, who's, who's surprised that you know, she sticks her fingers down her throat sometimes. Whereas for you, actually I think that um, the sympathy for a junkie is very limited. But actually they're both pretty gluttonous activities when I think about the core of my addiction within the eating I was just sheer gluttony I I know it's it's deeper than that it's more contextual than that but I'd lost control of the receptors in my brain that had told me to say no to eating 
Exactly. And I was just eating and eating and eating and I couldn't stop it. And the only way that I could justify doing that was by then making myself throw it all up. Sometimes I would think about the amount of money I spent on food. Mm. I feel so guilty. And I'm it's, sure you feel about the amount of money that yeah, you spent on, on like, heroin. Like, yeah, crazy Hundreds of, of pounds. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds. And similar to you, I kind of, I've externalised it in a way and I've become very disillusioned with the world around me. And you, because of... The reasons, for example, with you, like, the reasons that you give advertising and social pornography and I give mine to be similar as in uh, an unacceptance and a disregard and that society doesn't understand and it's, like, it's very much externalised and obviously there's an issue with how we relate to it but that's born from the world that we grew up in. But do you think that the more you externalise it, it's sort of easier to externalise things than to internalise it. Yeah. And then I actually, I struggle with that, with even just coming to terms with accepting that I have a problem, whereas there's the external where you think, oh, um, the world's brought me to this point. Mm-hmm. And then for me, the internal reality is that I'm greedy. And I really st- and I really struggle with that. I'm like, do I have an eating disorder? Do I have a problem? Is it, mm-hmm. is it an illness, which isn't me, which isn't internal? Mm-hmm. Is it an external illness that's controlling me? Or am I just a fucking pig? Because of eating. It's something I, I, I toy with all, and I still haven't drawn a line and a conclusion on that mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> at all, it's... because I think that the line is so thin. Yeah. There's the, everybody has their way of kind of coping with stuff, and mm-hmm. it's related to what suits their kind of own personal void and their own personal trauma. And some things are more accepted than others, and therefore some are less noticeable. And you kind of, with the line... It's weird where... when you say noticeable, because I don't think that anyone would look at you and think she takes heroin, and anyone would look at me and think she has an eating disorder. Yeah. I think that true. we hide it well. Yeah. And even this idea of notability is still externalising yeah something that is internal and I actually this is interesting with the with the withdrawal thing that I was talking to you about where it's like when I wasn't being really really ill I wasn't really really sick it's the reality of the situation that when all of the the madness of illness are gone and I'm still me Mm -hmm. and I'm left with the the trickle of my illness that still affects me sometimes but not really and I can get on with my life and I'm normal and I'm fine yeah, I, I I do just suffer from that. That is something that I deal with. Whether I deal with it well or not, it's a different matter. I guess so. Then the question is like, where's the line of it becoming a problem? And do you sometimes feel like for you that line would be, do I just need to get sober completely, or not? Because I mean, a lot of, a lot of people that have had serious addiction problems with something that's seemingly as serious as heroin, they would just go AA, yeah, completely sober. I, I that's something that I think about. But that, that seems, like, massive. Like, it's so... You know, I've been taking drugs since I was 11, younger than, and mm. it's informed my identity so much. Yeah. And it's so much a part of me. And also, it's my release. It's I, I find the pressures of every day and having to pretend to be a functioning human being really exhausting. Yeah. And so mm. it's my release, and it's my, like, this is how I let people know who I really am or is or how I let myself know... So I think in order to become teetotal, Mm. I would have to completely reassess my position in the world and leave society. (laughs) I can't pretend to be a normal person. (laughs) It's so tiring. Yeah, you know, I think think about you and I think about that. Especially when you, I remember you, like a year and a half ago, you first started going to some AA meetings. Was it AA? CA. CA. Cocaine Anonymous. Yeah. And, but that was still based on the... It was any narcotics. 12 yeah. steps. The 12 yeah, steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still 12 steps. And thinking... I'm thinking to myself, how, how is she ever going to um, be completely sober? And then if she is, what are we going to do? <laughs> like, I, how, how, how am I going to drink wine? And Not that I would ever wonder about um, whether or I would be your friend, but just something as basic as even a friendship as deep as ours... If that could, um, the suggestion that that might be affected by uh, your sobriety, yeah. how you must then think about your friendships with everything else and then your relationship with yourself. Yeah, it is. It is 
accepting that you potentially will become that person who people feel awkward drinking a glass of wine around. And when yeah. so many friendships are based on wine, mm. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if I could ever do it. But then I think it's just channeling, it's trying to channel that deep-seated mm. unrest. But it's interesting because no one would look at my addiction and be like, well, what does he need to do is yeah. stop eating completely. Then she'll be fine. fine, yeah. But what, could, what, are your, what solutions have been offered to you? Oh, so this is another thing I, I want to talk So I've never actually gone and, uh, and spoken to anybody seriously about my, my problems. I have had two appointments to go and see a counsellor and I've missed both of them because I've taken too many drugs. <laughs> and it's been they've both been on a fucking Monday or a Tuesday yeah, and no. I've booked them on the rare occasions where I have four days off at work which I don't often get I normally work weekends and of course you want to celebrate yeah I want to celebrate my 50 hour week <laughs> by putting it all up my nose <laughs> like a normal human um, but I do feel and that isn't really my problem isn't 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 drugs probably is more more food um but no i've missed i've missed both appointments um but i did have to go through a telephone interview uh, a few times and like a check and then my my partner who is a mental health worker pointed out to me last time and he said you know they don't give those appointments to anyone you've got to like pass certain criteria to get them and then it was so it was such a weird reaction to me because it didn't make me sad that I passed that cr- criteria. I felt so relieved that there was an acknowledgement that there was something wrong with me. Whereas sometimes I feel like I carry this burden of like more heavy than uh, the feeling of self worth I lack from um, from myself is this feeling that there's there's nothing wrong with me and it's all my fault. And uh, that that fucks me up. It, it really really messes me up. And I think that it makes me worse. But I totally, totally relate that sometimes the burden of knowing, of worrying that this is your fuck up and that this is your issue, because I don't, I don't know, essentially, but I, I don't know if there's anybody close who's around you that shares the same experience as you or has a similar thing. Like, if any of your close... It's really weird because I've had, I had dire friends that have had eating disorders I don't know anybody that ha- has had an eating disorder like I do, because um, I've never really known anyone with bulimia. Or have you ever felt that you ever felt that you've met someone with, with had similar addiction patterns to you that you felt you could relate to? I I found, well, I found the first meeting that I went to really helpful, and I still find it helpful today in a way. Even though the meetings that I go to, they're generally quite preachy and quite like, I've come through it and this way was the best way ever. And, uh, and But um, there is something really cathartic and really refreshing just to be around people who just who understand what you're going through or what you've been through and who also, they're very open to hearing your stories or to and sharing their stories and are just immediately welcoming because we share this thing in common. I will say this about me sometimes coming out to some of my female friends about some of my issues with eating and things like that is you will be surprised how quickly every a lot of the girls around you have had an experience and sometimes you could okay you might think that I would find that comforting but actually I didn't I have to say I didn't. I found it stressful because I felt like it trivialised what I was experiencing, even though I wasn't making a big fucking song and dance about what I was experiencing anyway. Because it wasn't like I was telling everyone and seeking help. I was sort of silently getting on with this thing that I hadn't even and still haven't understood as a serious thing. But yeah, there were there were quite a few friends of mine who who I might have hinted to that I had some issues with this and that. But there's this difference, isn't there? There's a difference between, like, people trying to relate to you because they want you to feel that you're grounding yourselves together, mm. that you're on the same plane. And then it almost being, like, a competitive thing. People can be competitive about their pain and yeah. their struggle. And it's like... I, 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 
And it's weird because even in like, even in a in a bizarrely competitive way, uh, I feel competitive about my lack of competitiveness towards my pain. Where I'm like, but I've struggled for so long in silence, and I've never even been to therapy. <laughs> do you know? Do you know what? It, it's so weird. It's like I don't want to be related to. I don't want to be don't related you? to. I don't. I don't want to be trivialized. I don't want to be related to. I don't want someone, somebody telling me that they know how I feel. Mm-hmm. I guess if they're saying, like, they know how you feel, then that's them kind of turning around and bringing it about them. And you're like, hang on a minute, I just need the space just to be honest with you and talk about yeah, myself because yeah. I'm really struggling with this. And if you try and relate, mm. suddenly I need to give you sympathy. And yeah. I can't yeah. do or, that. Or give you a piece of this thing, which is weird because then I, and I contemplate the moments in my life where um, people have done that to me, where they've been like, oh, well, this with me as well. If actually they were just trying to help me. Mm. So in that case, I wonder if point that we should mention here is sometimes if somebody is coming out to you about some really seemingly dark things in their life, there's that delicious silence mm. that you can give to someone that you love. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Which is a really hard thing to do because as soon as someone you love tells you that they're hurting, you just want to help them. Yeah. You just want to be like, no, I understand, it's cool, and I'm going to help you, we're going to go yeah. for a walk and everything's fine. And we'll do this together walks. and it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so many walks. So many walks. <laughs> we're going to do this together and it's going to be fine. And, and actually, actually, sometimes you need to give someone the space to tell them that you don't know if it's going to be fine and it's okay for it not to be fine. But it's weird, because when I look back on a lot of the times that you and I have spoken, in, in especially the last, like, three years, we would do this thing together where we would talk about our addictions in a, in a way that I think at its best laid the path out for you to speak honestly with me about what was going on in your life and then I could speak honestly with you about what was going on in my life and then maybe at its worst when maybe things were going better for you and worse for me or vice versa didn't always work mm -hmm. but but I wonder if if we united front in a way because um we both had this separate but similar thing that people didn't understand that we didn't understand about each other yeah I didn't I didn't realize that that there was more to what you were experiencing than just this thing that was going on in the place that you were at the time when you were doing it. I thought it had gone away. Um, and then you realise that it doesn't go away. Do you know what I mean? Which I, re I realise now it's not even about, like, the heroin or or the bulimia or, 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 or whatever. It's, 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 it's the mental patterns behind it and it's the, like... It's you. Yeah. When you told me about what was going on with you, like I, 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 I felt that need to to be active and to do something and be proactive and to help and be like, okay, I'm gonna gonna be there for you on the end of the phone always. I'm gonna make myself available and maybe I'll ask you to, you know, call up these people and speak to these people. And it's like, oh, you've given me some numbers, haven't you, in the past? Yeah. It's, it's useless. It is <laughs> it's totally useless. Yeah. It's not. Um, I, and obviously, also, I'm so grateful. So grateful that you're my friend, that you care that much. But yeah, it's just it's just one of those things, isn't it? Where I think sometimes when you're coming out to 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 someone you're close to, you just want them to to accept you and to listen. You don't really want help. Amazing. Thank you for that really insightful discussion. I think we've got about time for one more question before we close up for the day. Cameron, I'm from Brisbane in Australia. My question is about if the road to treatment means giving up some part of your personality and if if your personality becomes entwined with this addiction, do you have to accept that part or do you have to try to leave some part of you behind? Uh, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. People have the misconception that an addiction is something you can put down or pick up. But when you've been doing it for a long enough time, it becomes a part of your identity and it's bound up in ideas of community and status and it forms a part of who you are. So of course when you give that up, you have to adapt your identity to being without it. 
often you have friends or you have a social circle which is involved in the activity or whatever addictive habit that you have and so you have to then renegotiate that social situation and find out how you can be a part of it without doing the thing that has brought you together or it, or remove yourself from it. Also, you have to find ways to cope with living a life that denies you your method of relaxation or your reward system. One of the reasons why I take drugs, heroin especially, is, is because it it slows my mind down and it stops my paranoia, my anxiety and the thoughts that happen in my brain that I dislike, all of my insecurities, it gets rid of that and it makes me feel calmer and happier. So in order for me to complete my recovery, I have to find ways of dealing with the insecurities in my mind which are present and this takes work and it takes a lot of hard work and at first it can definitely feel like you are on an uphill struggle to try and reinvent yourself and deal with things that you've avoided or haven't had to deal with for a while so of course it feels like you're taking a backward step almost and I guess it's almost the opposite instead of leaving behind a bit of my personality I'm regaining bits of my personality which I dislike but in general when your addictive behavior has become a part of your everyday life or your everyday existence then you have to in a sense scrap it all and start again which is difficult and it will take a lot a lot of work but that's not to say that it isn't for the best in the long term. It just takes a bit of a struggle. But, you know, I can say that I, I haven't made nearly enough steps towards it. For me to step away from taking drugs, especially any form of drugs at all, means that I have to find new ways of enjoying myself, new ways to relate to friends, and change the basis for a lot of my social activities. So yeah, of course, there's there's a huge part of identity which is wrapped up in addictive behaviour and it can feel almost traumatic to make the conscious decision to scrap it and start again and move into a world where you operate in a completely different way and participate in a completely different way. It's a, it's a huge ask but one that we must ask of ourselves when the price of being an addict becomes too high. And on that note, it's time to end the podcast. I apologise for the late arrival of it. Uh, it's been a long one to collect and to produce. And for future podcasts, as always, please feel free to call 07521 with any questions you might have next week. We'll see if we can get uh, an interview with a local homeless person, which is talking about what it's like to be in the streets and how the drugs has helped or hindered them. Brilliant, thanks. See you next week.